They must have known a, a photographer was coming. That's what I've concluded. Someone must have tipped them off. Take a shower, shave, brush your teeth, get your good clothes, strike a pose, find a smile because someone's coming to take your picture. And so they did, that community in Jerusalem. That's what I've decided happened on that day. Someone must have told them, this is the day we're going to take a picture of your community, so clean up and sit up and straighten up and pull it together. That's what I conclude after reading Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. The Bible says that when they gathered there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a picture of the first Christian community there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem Church on Purpose. According to the Bible, it's a frameable moment. You, you would put it on your wall and look at it often, and it's the ideal for all of those of, of us who come after. Humans at their backs. The Bible says they're, they're devoted to one another. They share with one another. They, they're together. No one goes without. The text says whether they're in the temple, the church, whether they're at home, they're continually praying together and praising God, worshiping God. Somebody must have told them, look, we're going to take a photo of you today, so sit up, clean up, straighten up, get it together. Because really, this is church? It's a photo moment. The ideal church, the earliest Christian community. Do you know how many sermons and books have been written on the Acts 2 community? Oh, for the good old days of the first century. Last night we were gathered here. The adventurers had their program. You saw a little snapshot of their year. But on the steps last night they gathered. This is our club for children ages 4 to 9, those of you who aren't familiar. All year they've been working together. Last night they celebrated with honors and certificates and music. And, and they came up the front aisle clean and dressed and posed and all matching in their uniforms with their scarves. And they stood where their teachers told them to stand and they did what their teachers told them to do. It was a picture moment. Actually, Karen Davidson stood down here beside them, and when she saw the flashes going off, she actually said, this feels like a photo op. I think I'm going to move out of the way. And she did, and she let the parents and the grandparents take all their pictures. Frameable moment. Now, if you stayed with the picture long enough, and I did, it's not long before somebody's elbowing, right? It's not long before somebody's kicking, right? pulling the hair. It's not long before somebody says, get off me. It's not long before the little skirts are up around the neck and somebody's picking at their nose. And we got those pictures too. <laughs> Just not showing them to you today. 
It's not long before maybe they're pledging the flag, but maybe they're punching somebody out. Maybe they're saying what they're supposed to, but maybe they don't want to, and they just sit down on the steps, right? Because they're human. Now, doesn't that feel a little more like church? Really? Doesn't that feel like what we should read when we go to Acts chapter 2? Humans being humans, not all cleaned up and posed and perfect. The adventurers, they gave me a clearer picture of church last night, I think, than what I'm reading in the Bible this morning. Acts 2, really, is that what the Christian community looked like? Is that how they behaved? Is that what their fellowship was really like? Acts 2, did they experience that or did someone just catch them on a good day? At a good moment. Was that what they experienced? Or is it just history sort of memorialized? Is it just a, a romanticized, rose-colored memory of what church was like? A first love moment gathering in the name of Jesus, the one who's now left them. Perfect little community. It is almost as if the author of Acts anticipates the question this morning, because if you go forward two pages to Acts chapter 4, it's almost as if the author is saying, uh-huh, you didn't think the community was like that? Well, let, let me just say it again. Acts chapter 4, listen to this description of their community, beginning in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shed, shared everything they had. They shared everything. Danny, can I just have your wallet this morning then? <laughs> they shared everything they had, the Bible says. One community pot. Verse 34, there was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to anyone who had need. Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus, when the apostle, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. The first wealthy owner in the Christian movement, the first excessive gift they received. Someone sold their entire estate and put it in the common pot, the feet of the church. Maybe they're restating in chapter 4 what they've already said in chapter 2, but even so, we can't miss the emphasis. What the Bible's telling us, us is they are united with one heart, with one mind, with one experience. That's what it is to be unified or united, to be moving as one, to operate as a unit. If you move back to chapter 2 where we began now, many people through the centuries have taken chapter 2 and they see in there a very clear outline for the way the Christian church ought to operate. In fact, if Christian churches would stick to these four principles, these four characteristics of being community together, our churches would be so full we wouldn't know what to do with the people. And, and many an evangelistic protocol, methodology, has been birthed out of Acts chapter 2. This is what the people did. Here is their formula. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is that? They don't have a Bible. They don't have a formally developed doctrine. There's no book that says 28 fundamental beliefs. What is that? Apostles' teaching. Probably the stories of Jesus. Probably their experience with Jesus. And when some begin to die off, the others pick up and start telling the story of Jesus as they heard it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
But remember, it's going to be several hundred years before there's formal doctrine and theology coming out of the church. It's going to be 300 years at least before someone, a group gathers and says, this is exactly what we believe. And Adventist Christians stand in that tradition of kind of an unfolding doctrine, a growing understanding of theology. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, the Bible says. It's a good word, koinonia there, the fellowship that they experienced. It's this, Paul, it becomes Paul's favorite word for describing Christian fellowship, having all things in common, living the common life, being companions, sharing. They're dedicated to this, the Bible says. But doesn't it just make you a little curious? Really, is there a community pot? Do they bring their proceeds and put them in the pot? When someone has excess goods and food, do they bring it and it's distributed equally among them? Is that what the common fellowship is about? Do they, do they really take care of everyone so there's no need in their midst? And is it voluntary or do you think they're forced? Is it compulsory? Do they, if you're going to be part of this fellowship, you have to bring your goods. And they're all, they'll all be divided as some have called this sort of a Christian communism. Do you think it's that kind of a fellowship? Is that what's happening? It is clear what they devote themselves to are the needs of the weakest. That's for sure. Those who are weak are prioritized. So a community that studies the apostles' teaching, they devote themselves to the weakest in their midst. The third thing they do, devote themselves to the breaking of the bread. That probably means the ceremony like we celebrate here with the bread and the cup, the communion, the sacred meal. But also means their meals at home. The everyday eating, of taking of nourishment, sitting around a table together. For the Jews, that involved a ritual called the breaking of the bread ceremony and praying over their food. So they devoted themselves to taking communion together, the special religious meal that symbolized their following Christ. But they also probably just had supper together an awful lot, sat around the same table, eating out of the same pot of food. And finally, the text says they devoted themselves to prayer, formal prayer, in the temple, the Bible says, memorized prayer, scheduled prayer three times a day in their homes, all types of prayer at home and at temple. These are the things this community did. The Bible says they devoted themselves to it. But what is so interesting to me is that within a chapter, they're already in trouble. Within a chapter, they're already arguing about things. Within a, within a few chapters, they're in trouble with the food. The widows, they're starting to complain, two sides of the community. You're feeding our widows more than, more than you're giving these widows. And it becomes an argument over the distribution of the food. I remember when we lived in Houston, I went to a large Baptist church downtown, you know, 20,000-member church, and the, the inside of the sanctuary seated six, 8,000 people. And I remember one day the pastor speaking about these widows in the Acts community and the bickering, that it wasn't fair, the food wasn't being distributed equally. The pastor brought in donuts and fed one-third of the congregation. Passed donuts out, literally. The deacons just came out in mass. One-third of the congregation got donuts. Then he turned to everybody else and said, how do you feel? That's what's going on in the Acts community. It's not fair. Some are getting more food than others. Pretty soon, it's not just about the food they're distributing. They really seem to be out of money because offerings are taken up for the Jerusalem community. And on the missionary journeys Paul goes with his friends, regularly you hear they're going to take an offering for the Jerusalem church because it sounds like that Jerusalem church has an awful lot of poor people. 
No shortage of poor folk in Jerusalem. It's not just their resources. They begin to argue about theology. By chapter 15, it's an out-and-out theological battle, theological war, first council of the church. What do you mean they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching about Jesus? By chapter 15, they're at each other's necks over theology. And pretty soon they won't pray in the church or the temple at all. The temple is going to be off limits. That'll be the site of and a source of abuse and martyrdom for them. The temple's not going to be a safe place to pray in a few chapters. This wonderful picture of church, but within just a few pages, you have to ask the question, really? Are they going to be able to sustain this? Because if we skip forward a few pages, it doesn't look like it. One of the stories that Shirley told around Paul's bed, and for those of you who are visiting today, a church member who's been sick for six months that we just lost last week, and we expected to bring him back to church, not to have to bury him. But Shirley gave me permission to share this story with you because one of the stories they told around the bedside over the months ensuing here, a few days before Paul went to the hospital, he went to the hospital in November, November 5. They were picking pomegranates from the tree. They decided they would harvest and get everything, you know, cleaned up and stored. They picked, they, Shirley brought the bag of pomegranates in and Paul took a bag to the sink by the washer and dryer. Shirley took a bag and went into the other room. And she was peeking on Paul and noticed he's standing over the sink by the washer and dryer. And he's starting to open the pomegranates and, you know, pull the seeds out. And she thought, you know, he's going to get tired. You're not going to be able to stand there hunched over the sink and work that way. We have a, a lot of pomegranates here. So she set up a table on the patio. She thought this will be a lot more comfortable. She got the chairs out, put the towels out, the water, towels to wash her hands. She went back to where Paul was working and said, you know, honey, this is going to get tiring for you. I've, I made a place where you can sit and we'll do it together. We'll sit at the table together and work on the pomegranates. It'll be a lot more comfortable. Paul stopped his work and looked at Shirley and said, I'm going to go to the hospital in a few days, you know. Just once before that, can I do something the way I want to do it? <laughs> Don't you say amen over there now. Shirley listened. You know he's right. A few days he's going to go to the hospital. It's just pomegranates, people. But, she said, that's right. In just a few days you're going to go to the hospital. And just once before then, could you do it my way? Now that is life. Now that is, those are relationships at home, at work, and right here in the church. Just once, can't you do it my way? Just once, can we read out of the proper translation of the Bible? <laughs> Could you get that light on Jesus up there? How many notes do we have to write for you to turn the light on up there? It's a wiring problem. You can stop writing your notes. We know. You want him on. It's a wiring problem. Can we all just have the same kind of worship music? Do we have to have be people of the screen? Can't we be people of the hymnal again? Right? This is church. This is the human church. But in Acts 2, God does something with the sinful human condition when he asks them to try community a new and improved way. That's the request. 
And the people gathered in Acts 2 didn't get the idea on their own. They got the idea by watching Jesus move around Palestine. They got the idea by seeing what Jesus did and modeling what Jesus did. So for them, for when they gathered in this kind of a community, it really was a sharing of resources. It really was a taking care and prioritizing the weak in their midst. It really was all things in common because the common good is what Jesus had in mind, isn't it? That's where the idea came from. That's what the little group modeled itself after. The common good of all members. Now, for a while in Acts, it's just a few of them. After the first sermon, 3,000 are added. And if you follow this out to its logical conclusion, it won't just be a few people because they plan on taking the gospel where? To the ends of the earth. So by the time the story is done, it is the common good of all people, all humans everywhere. That is the mark, the concern of this Christian group to be concerned for all humans, to structure a movement around the weakest members. Now that doesn't go so cleanly and smoothly in the Western American world because we prioritize and structure our world a little differently. Even in the church, can you imagine that we'll build up a church and our motto would be, or our selling point to the Yukaipa Valley would be, come sign up with us because here you're going to get to give to the weakest members in the world. Here you're going to get to prioritize your resources around the poorest and the neediest people of all. Could you imagine that as a selling line? Because even Christian churches are selling themselves, looking for what the market is consuming, looking for what families want in a church. Even the Christian church, one author sort of lamenting about this recently said, it used to be years ago and centuries ago, sanctuaries were built in the front. There would be a stone altar representing the sacrificial life of Jesus. And now we put a latte bar in the back where people can have their sweet drink of their own choosing, custom made in church. Isn't that an interesting symbolism of church past and church present? The idea of organizing ourselves around the common good of the weakest members of society, it doesn't work so well because the world you and I live in is organized around the needs of a few. It's been for centuries like this throughout history, armies and corporations and religious leaders and political zealots, they've overpowered the majority in the world. They've overpowered the common need, often basic needs. Happened in the time of Jesus. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so precious and it, it falls like a healing balm on their ears. They really are poor. They really are wounded in their spirit. They really do live at the bottom of the barrel. So the words from Jesus are such a comfort. You and I live in a world where the consuming creature is the dominant creature and you and I are the consuming creature. The one who consumes. That's us. The world is organized on our behalf. It's a consumer-oriented free market we live in in the West where assign, uh, value is assigned not based on inherent worth because you're human, because you're a child of God, but value is assigned based on what you'll consume. And society will be happy to create something we don't even know we want to consume yet. But they create it and they persuade us we want it. And that's the power at work in the Western world. And friends, Christians are on top of the list when it comes to consumption and consuming. 
as your pastor and as a member of your congregation here, I invite you just one title this year. Would you select and read just one book or watch one movie on the topic of consumption in America? And what it is, who consumes the resources in our world and, and what that means for the rest of the world. What it means for those of us privileged enough to be able to consume. We have the power to consume. Just find one book on that topic or one movie. You can watch one movie online called The Story of Stuff if you haven't watched that yet. Just, just select one title because educating ourselves on this kind of a society that we live in is ultimately for the sake of God's community. Understanding that we are the ones consuming and that if we were to take seriously the invitation from Acts that we would redistribute goods for the weakest in the world, the, those who, who have the greatest needs in society, well, that would change church, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that change church? If we prioritized and organized ourselves that way? By the way, that would be a church that would change the world. That would be a church that would change society because no longer would the government be caring for the weakest and the poorest in the world, but faith communities would actually do that. And I believe that's what Jesus had in mind. In our visioning committee, we've been struggling a little bit to find a word that helps us understand the value we've placed on community, being together as a body of believers and, and being connected and committed to each other. We've struggled to find a word that represents that value. We have other values we've identified like compassion and integrity. But what's the word you would assign to the community being together and sticking together and be caring for one another and, and loving that, that we're organized around the idea of being family together? We've had a hard time finding the word for that, but it occurs to me after studying Acts 2 and 4 that this koinonia word is that word, this kind of fellowship which organizes itself for the other is exactly the kind of word we've been talking about. Partners, associates, companions, we're in the same work. We have things in common for the common good, koinonia. If you look at the redwood tree, it gives us a great example of this kind of commitment. I didn't realize that, and you know when you've driven up the coastline and you go head up north, these massive trees, 250, 350 feet up into the air. This huge volume of weight, their trunk and the limbs up above the ground. But did you know that underneath the ground, the roots are very shallow. They go maybe six or eight or ten feet down. They're very shallow. And the diameter of the roots of these huge redwood trees, they're, they're small, an inch, two inches in diameter. Very shallow under the surface. But you know what they do? They spread out. And if you've lived where there are redwoods, you know. The roots spread and move, and they'll creep out 60 and 80 feet until my roots be entangled with the tree next to me and next to me. And, and that's why redwoods grow and last a millennia, because their roots spread out, and they're all entangled together. And that's a forest. And they stand the test of time because their root system is all connected, entangled together for the good of not just themselves, for the good of the whole forest. The root system of the redwood tree speaks about the connectedness of the community in Acts chapter 2. People who find themselves entangled for the sake of other people. 
because of the gospel. This is Christian community. I'm pleased here at Calamesa when I look at the commitments that we make as a congregation. When I look at the funds internally, funds we have to take care of one another, thousands and thousands of dollars flow between us month after month, year after year. You have a fund, the Community Service Center. When I joined you, I could not believe, and I thought, well, this won't last. But that fund for the community services is $15,000, $20,000 balance year-round. Did you know that? People just continually giving to the Community Services Fund so that we can feed and clothe and help. People who continually give to the Membership Assistance Fund so that one of, when one of us is in a pickle, when one of us needs a bill paid, when one of us runs into a health crisis or a, a financial hardship, we help each other. Did you know we had a fund like that here? Thousands of dollars every year goes into the Membership Assistance Fund. Worthy Student Fund does the same thing, about $35,000 every year. By the way, all of this is outside of church budget. This has nothing to do with church budget. All of this you give specific donations to. The Worthy Student Fund, $35,000 goes so a group of students can be at Mesa Grande this year. The Academy's all out singing at the desert this morning, but there's about 12, 15 of those students that are at the school because you've decided you want to help them. The Spanish Church is another testimony to that kind of thing, helping from within the weakest members of society. Look at them now. Do you know I called them this week to see if we could use their church? What a turn of events. Excuse me, Elder Peverini, we have a need. Could we use your church? What a great phone call. This church did that alongside them. I am so pleased when I see that, but it occurs to me after studying Acts that there might be more. Because for the Calamesa church in particular, this comes very easy. Writing a check, we do easy. That's easy for this congregation. But reorganizing our resources, prioritizing our ministries around the weakest members in our church and in our community, now that would be a whole different conversation. Do you see that? It would be a whole new layer to the conversation. And that might hit us a little more where it hurts. There is more we could do as a church. As Calamesa goes internally, I believe we will go externally. As it is, we take care of one another. So it is, we'll move outside of these walls and do the very same thing in our community. You see, the problem in Acts isn't that they had this wonderful ideal and then within a few pages, they messed up. The problem isn't that they had too big of a goal. The problem isn't that they shot for something that they never could achieve. The problem, that, that's not the problem at all. What happened with all the deficiencies of being church is that still... They tried. They are a church who tried. They attempted it. Did they fail? They failed miserably. Did they ever hit the mark precisely? Probably not. But God never said, get it perfect. Jesus never said, you have to do it right. Jesus said, please try this. And the Acts church did. Philip Yancey, in the book, why bother? Church, why bother? Tells a story of a high school band in a rural area, a very uncultured area. Let's pick Needles. Anybody from Needles here? Oh, are you from Needles? Oh. Okay, anyway. 
I don't even know if Needles has a high school, do they, Chris? Is it a tiny one? Is it uncultured? It's very uncultured. We're on target. The Needles High School Band, let's say we ask them to play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, according to the way the story goes. Somebody gives them the music that Beethoven's composed, and they practice and they rehearse, and it's time for their performance, and they stand up with their instruments, and they sound appalling. They're horrible. Bad. You don't want to listen. So bad that even if Beethoven could hear, he was deaf, but if he could hear, he would roll over in his grave. Horrible. Somebody says, why did you ask those kids to play the symphony? That's complex. It's complicated. They can't play that music. Why even ask them to do that? Do you know that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra cannot even execute that piece with precision? Why would you ask the kids in needles to do such a thing? And the response is, well, they didn't play it well, but we sure heard the sound of trying. And if they hadn't done that, the world would never have even heard the sound of trying Beethoven's music. So it is with the Christian church. Do we make mistakes? Do we harm? Do we sometimes deflate the gospel of Jesus instead of, instead of glorify it? Absolutely. Do we make mistakes? Every week we get it off just a little bit. But maybe because we try, the world will hear the sounds of the gospel, the sounds of a church trying. And that God can bless. Let's pray. Dismiss us, God, with the mighty assignment you've given us of being fellowship and community together. Dis dismiss us with that assignment, knowing your graciousness will cover our attempts. May the sound of the gospel be heard in our world because we tried. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.